Before we turn to our passage this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer before we begin. Our Lord and our God, we come to you this morning rejoicing that we can. Rejoicing that we can pray and you hear us. That in Christ our prayers are heard by you, holy God. And Father, we do ask this morning that you would bless our time in your word. We ask that you would be lifted up, that you would make yourself clear in this passage, that we would see Christ in this passage, that we would see what this means for us in our day and age. Father, we praise you. And we give you glory this morning. We do ask that you would speak to us by your spirit, calm our hearts, help us not to be distracted, help us not to be pondering the things that have gone on this past week or the things that will happen this week, whether we fear them or excited about them. May we engage with your word even this morning. Speak to us by your spirit through your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. While you're turning to Acts chapter 24 in your Bibles, I was reflecting in light of this passage on where our family was about eight or nine years ago. And of course, uh, most of you know this story. We were missionaries in Russia. It had been there for some time, some three years almost, and We were always struggling with how to get visas, how to be able to uh, return and live there, have documentation to be legal in Russia, and because you you don't want to be illegal in Russia, that would be very bad for you. And so we were trying to find ways to uh, get visas and whatnot, so we ended up taking a short trip to to Istanbul, Turkey, and uh, we thought we were going to be there as long as six weeks, perhaps, if things kind of dragged on, and and, uh, so we... We would rather be back in Russia. We would rather have been uh, ministering, uh, living our lives, being with our friends and and, uh, those things in Russia. And we were unable to here. We were sent to Istanbul. And so we thought, well, we'll... We'll, uh, we'll have fun there. We'll see the sights and spend, spend some time and whatnot. And of course, as you know, our six weeks there turned into 10 weeks there. And, uh, and so it was a little bit trying on us. But uh, something that was even more trying early on was really just the not having anything to do, really, because it was wintertime, which means rainy season in Istanbul. And, and so it was rainy and yucky outside. We didn't want to go and walk and see the sights. And we uh, stayed in our little apartment that was very small. And it was, it was kind of muggy in there and it was cold and there was mold growing on the walls. And that was a lot of fun. <laughs> and so, and my poor wife was washing, you know, doing laundry by hand and hanging it to dry and didn't have anywhere to hang it to dry except in our bedroom, which it would take two or three days for the laundry to dry. It's hanging in your bedroom and your bedroom is damp. And so it it kind of dragged on a little bit and uh, seemed to get a little bit old. And all the while I'm thinking, I just want to be back to Russia. We're here for a purpose. That's to get our visas. And then we're going to return to Russia. We're going to go back and be able to minister and, and continue putting down roots there and developing things. And 
It was uh, it was a trying time in, in some of those senses, especially when it got to be more than six weeks and all the way up to 10 weeks. And the conclusion of the whole thing was that actually we didn't get a visa to return to Russia. But the Lord used that time because most of you know the conclusion of that story is that towards the end of that time, we uh, were asked to come to Parkside and to uh, pastor here. And so the Lord used that time of putting us on the shelf in Istanbul for some number of weeks to bring us from Russia, to bring us willingly and excitedly to Parkside and minister here. And so often the Lord uses times like that where we might not understand what's going on, where we might feel like we've been put on the shelf and we can't figure out why, and, uh, but the Lord is doing something different. And that's kind of what's happening here in our passage today as we turn to Acts chapter 24. We've been working our way through this book and we've seen the journeys of Paul and now we've seen that Paul is is in custody and the things that are going on and I'm sure he felt like he was kind of on the shelf. It doesn't say that. I didn't read that in the text. I'm just imagining that a person who has traveled so much and done so much ministry is so used to uh, teaching Bible day in and day out, you know, in public and from house to house and and uh, dealing with these large situations all around the Roman Empire that for him it would be a little difficult to sit in jail for day after day and week after week as weeks stretch into months into years. He's on the shelf. And what was going on? What was the Lord doing? So we, we come to our passage kind of with that in mind, that here this Paul who's been traveling so much, he's been on the go, and now he's not going anywhere. He's hanging out. And so uh, we turn to uh, this situation in chapter four, where uh, 24, where now Paul is being put on trial and the case is brought against him. And, and so we pick up our, our narrative here in 24 and verse 1. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus, and they laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. And so we see a great deal of flattery going on. Of course, Felix is the representative of the Roman government, and the Roman government was in charge of Palestine, was in charge of Judea and this area, Caesarea and whatnot. And, and of course, that's where the Jews lived. And so the, the long and the short of it is that the Jews are under the control of the Romans. And the Romans get to call the shots, and this Felix is the one who represents the Romans. He's the Roman authority there. And and uh, there, so he, this Tertullus, who's kind of like a, a spokesman, he's kind of like an attorney. He's the one bringing the case, organizing the argument and whatnot. And he comes and he says all these flattering things. Uh, you know, we, we just love having you as our governor and you've done such a great job and you've brought such peace and we're all so happy to serve under you. And of course, none of it's true. <laughs> none of it's true, especially if you start reading the history. And this would have been clear to all of them at the time. But if you start reading what Felix was like, he, he was far from peaceful. He would crush rebellion with cruelty. And he would put it down. And he would profit personally from it. He was not a good guy. He, was, he, was, uh, he ruled with an iron fist and he was corrupt. And, and actually, uh, far from bringing peace to the region, 
He was actually one of the ones largely responsible for causing unrest in the region, which would eventually lead to the, the rebellion, the war, rebellion war of the Jews that culminated in A.D. 70 with the destruction of the temple. And so far from being someone who brought peace, he was actually kind of a troublemaker and, and the people did not like him. But Tertullus is trying to make his case. And if you're making your case before a judge, you probably shouldn't accuse the judge of things before you start. And so he decides that he's going to flatter him before he begins. And then he, he makes his argument, beginning in verse 4, he makes his argument against Paul. He says, But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And so that's the, the core of his argument. He says basically that this Paul is a troublemaker. And everywhere he goes, he, he causes riots and he causes problems. And, and of course, Rome knew that uh, one secret to keeping their empire intact was to keep peace. And so they would always try to keep peace in the regions. You didn't want uprisings and you didn't want overthrows of government. And you didn't want one group of people attacking another. You wanted to keep everything nice and quiet and peaceful. And, and, uh, and, and so Tertullus knows that by bringing this charge against Paul, he can, he can catch Felix's attention. That Paul actually is a troublemaker. Everywhere he goes, he starts these riots. People are fighting. And so he, he, he's, he's tearing up this peace that you, Felix, have worked so hard to establish. And, and so he brings this argument against Paul. And, and, uh, and so Paul is a troublemaker. He's, he's, uh, he's someone that uh, Felix should pay attention to and should put down. So he's a threat to the peace of Rome. But he continues. He's not done there. He says Paul also is a threat to the peace in Jerusalem. He continues in verse 6. He even tried to profane the temple. But we seized him. By examining him, you yourselves will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And so Tertullus brings up the fact that, yeah, Paul is a troublemaker and he's disturbing the peace of Rome. But he's even worse than that. He's, he's actually meddling in our religion. He's meddling in the local religion of the Jews, and he's come and he's tried to profane the temple. And of course, if you remember, he's reflecting back on that time when they arrested Paul in the temple, or they, they jumped him and they started to uh, scream for help because, oh, he's profaning the temple because he's brought in some Gentiles into the temple. Well, of course, he had not brought Gentiles into the temple, uh, but that was the charge they brought against him, and so they're trying to make it stick again. But Paul's a troublemaker is the case. He's caused trouble generally uh, throughout the kingdom amongst the Jews uh, by raising up these riots, by causing problems. And, and he's causing problems right here in Jerusalem because he's breaking Jewish law and he's causing problems within the religion of the Jews. And so uh, really, Felix, you need to put him down. And, and, um, and so, of course, the Jews in verse 9, they agree and they say, yeah, yeah, he's right. Amen. And they bring this charge. And so... So this is the charge that's laid against Paul. And the Jews are trying to make their case as strongly as they can because they don't, they're not really concerned about justice. They're not really concerned about finding what is true or what is right. They really just want to get rid of him. And how often does that happen? How often do we forget about what is true and we forget to think about what is right 
and what is good and what is just. And instead, we want to fight for our own way. And of course, that's kind of what they're doing there. And so that's the case that's brought against Paul. But of course, Paul gets to make his own defense. He is a Roman citizen after all. So he gets to stand up and make his defense. And he says, first of all, that actually his, his, his worship was peaceful. There was nothing threatening about the way he was worshiping. He, we pick it up in verse 10. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in a temple or in the synagogues or in the city. He said, I was, I was worshiping peacefully. I wasn't causing a problem. There I was standing in the temple amongst all these Jews who don't believe in Christ. And was I causing a stir? Was I debating with them? Was I, was I causing problems there? No, I was just there worshiping worshiping when they grabbed me. And so he says, no, my, my worship was actually very peaceful. There was nothing, uh, nothing dangerous about it, nothing threatening the peace that uh, the Romans should be concerned about. But he continues on and says, not only was his worship peaceful, but it was also lawful. He continues in verse 13. He says, neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written by the prophets, written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. And so Paul says, even my worship that I was doing, not only was I not causing a stir, but I was actually worshiping lawfully that I believe the law and I believe the prophets and I was acting accordingly. There was nothing uh, irreligious. There was nothing that was, that was blasphemous about my religion, nothing, nothing that would cause a problem uh, with, these, with these Jews that I was worshiping amongst. And so he says my, my uh, worship there actually was lawful as well. And so he's trying to clear himself. He's trying to explain that, yeah, they've brought, you know, supposed facts, but actually these facts are not facts at all. And he continues on to talk about his own conscience. In verse 16, he says, So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. Paul says, in essence, what he says is theology matters. He had just concluded his previous statement by saying that he believed in the resurrection of the just and the unjust. Well, if you believe in the resurrection, if you believe that there will come a time when you will be raised to be examined, then you will live accordingly. And he says, I believe there will be a time when we will be raised. Both the just will be raised to be examined and the unjust will be raised to be examined. And in light of that, I strive to keep a clear conscience before God and men at all times. Because theology matters. 
because it is true that we will be raised. And so he lives in light of that. And so he keeps his conscience clear in his day-to-day life, which is interesting. That's interesting that he would say the resurrection, thinking about the resurrection and thinking about coming judgment affects my life. How often... How often do you look at someone's life or maybe you think about your own life and, and you try to think about why would they do such a thing? Why, why, why does this person avoid this thing? Why does this person do this thing? It's because of what they believe to be true. Why, why do some believe that, that lying on your taxes is okay? Well, it's because of what they believe ultimately. Why do some people believe that Sexual immorality is okay. Or that, that it can be redefined. It's because of what they believe, ultimately. Why, why do some people believe that it's okay to mistreat others? Well, it's because of what they believe, ultimately. See, what, what we believe works its way out into how we live our lives. And so the solution is to address what we believe the solution is not to address just the outworking, but to address what we are believing is ultimately true. And so a challenge for us this morning is to think about your own life and why do we do the things that we do? Ultimately, it's because of our ultimate values, the things that are good, the things that we believe are good and right and true, and we act accordingly. The person who lies on his taxes, let's say the Christian who lies on his taxes, it's because he believes... God doesn't really care. And this world's burning up anyway, so not a big deal. I still honor God. I'm still honest with God, but, uh, but lying to the government is okay. Or mistreating one another. It's because, it's because I believe, well, I have a right to do that. God won't really care because I'm, I'm just sort of, I'm not really hurting anyone. I'm not doing anything really bad against that person. And so... I submit to you that the things we do stem from the things we believe, the things we value. And that holds true when you think about how Paul writes his letters. Think about Romans or think about Ephesians or really any of Paul's letters. What does he start off talking about? What to believe. He starts off talking about theology. And then, after having discussed theology, after having discussed what is ultimately true and what is ultimately good, what is ultimately valuable, then, after having discussed that, he draws conclusions. And he says, therefore, in light of these things, live this way. Live this way. Because this is ultimately true. Because truth ultimately shapes behavior. Because doctrine directs life. Because the indicative, the things that are true, inform the imperative, the things that we should do. We see that in Paul's letters and we see that in the Ten Commandments. We think about the Ten Commandments, maybe, maybe the core of, of ethical teaching in all of the Bible. And how does it start? Exodus chapter 20. How does that chapter start? It starts by saying, I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt. Therefore, and then he gives the Ten Commandments. So he states what is true. 
He states what is ultimately valuable. That is this relationship with this God who has saved them before he gets into lifestyle. And Paul says, because I believe in the resurrection, the result in my life is that I keep a clear conscience before God and before man. And so, of course, this gives him an easy way to defend himself against Felix. He doesn't have anything to hide. He doesn't have anything to hide. And so this is Paul's defense. And, uh, and these are the charges brought against him. This is the, the defense that he makes. And it's all kind of courtroom stuff and uh, big, you know, big deal. Why do we really care? What, what I want us to think about while we're working through this is, is kind of what happens in Paul's life. He's, he's going to get unique opportunities as a result of being in jail. And we're going to see at the end of the chapter, he's in jail here for two years, just kind of awaiting trial or awaiting sentencing or awaiting a final answer. He's just hanging out, but it's going to give him unique opportunities. If you remember back in Acts chapter 9, when Paul was first called into the ministry, when he was first called to Christ, what did Jesus tell him? Chapter 9 and verse 15, he said, Paul is going to take the message of Christ to the Gentiles, to the people, and to kings. So Paul's going to stand before high authorities And he's going to have a unique platform, a unique opportunity to proclaim the gospel. And we see that that's exactly what happens here with Paul addressing Felix, who's the governor of the whole region. This is the most senior person he's been able to address yet. And why does he get to talk to him? Because he's in jail. So Paul, who wants to hop a ship and go somewhere... He wants to walk, you know, miles to get to the next town and preach the gospel and go on. And, and he, who's been traveling all over, Paul, who is sitting there in jail, chained up and can't go anywhere, he gets to address the king, the governor. He gets to speak to the highest authority that he's addressed yet. And so uh, we kind of reflect on that when we think about the unique opportunities here that Paul gets. We continue our passage in verses 22 and 23, but Felix having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the, tri- the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. And so here we see that uh, Felix starts off with kind of some political maneuverings. He-, he could just give an answer. Nah, he's innocent. Let him go. Except that Felix has a problem because the Jews don't like him. Even though Tertullus had said, we all think you're great, they didn't all think he was great. They didn't like him. And so uh, Felix is in a a bind because he, he would love, in order to appease the Jews, in order to keep things peaceful in his relationship with the Jews, he would love just to put Paul to death. But the case hasn't been proven. And it turns out Paul is a Roman citizen. And so Felix has to be careful here. And so... But he can't just free Paul because of the Jews. He wants to appease the Jews, and yet he can't mistreat Paul because he's a Roman citizen, and so there are certain obligations there. And so he kind of compromises, and he keeps him in jail and says, Well, when I hear from that guy, Lysias, then I will make my ruling. Well, if you remember, Claudius Lysias already wrote a letter saying, I didn't find anything wrong with the guy. There's no crime he committed. So he already has his testimony But Felix is sort of just stalling and he's trying to appease the Jews while at the same time 
doesn't want to mistreat Paul too badly since he's a Roman citizen. Nothing has been proven. And so the result is Paul has a little bit of freedom. His friends can come visit him. He's not being mistreated and yet he's still locked up. And so we see Felix's political maneuverings there. But it's an interesting story as we continue on verses 24 through 26. And after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. And so we see Paul's testimony, Paul's opportunity to be able to share with Felix and his wife, Drusilla. Now, the backstory is a little bit uh, important here for what's going on. You see, Felix was married to his third wife. Drusilla was his third wife. And for Drusilla, Felix was her second husband. And actually, Drusilla was very young. She was Jewish. And actually, she's the daughter of Herod Agrippa that we read about earlier and the sister of, of Agrippa II that we're going to read about in the next chapter. So she's definite royalty. Uh, so she's Jewish. She's very young. And she married this man who was a Syrian king while she was very young. And she was gorgeous. And when Felix saw her, he had to have her. And so Felix goes and hires a magician from Cyprus. I don't know why, why he did that exactly. But he hired a magician from Cyprus to work in the situation and convince uh, Drusilla to leave the king or the king to divorce Drusilla. But the long and the short of it is Felix got her divorced from her husband and then she and he got married. And so um, it kind of sounds like she was a victim in this, but she wasn't. She was just as, as desirous for, for power as he was desirous for her. And so he had the power and she had the beauty. And so they were a match made uh, for each other. And so we see that they, they're, they're a very driven couple and they're not, they're not a really upright couple at all. And he's, he's a Gentile and she's Jewish. And so they come together to speak to Paul, which I just think is fascinating. Paul, who traveled around so much, has to be locked up in chains and the governor comes to visit him. God's at work. God's at work. Paul's probably thinking, like I did when I was in Turkey, that he's on the shelf. Man, I really just want to get out there and, and you know, and get going. I, I, I want to cover some ground. I want to preach the gospel. I want to... So he's locked up and can't go anywhere. So the ministry comes to him in the form of the governor. Comes and asks questions and wants to hear more. And so Paul gets to proclaim the gospel. He gets to... He gets to uh, preach Christ, and as he's doing that, it's very interesting what he does because he speaks about three different things. First of all, he speaks to them about righteousness. Think of the backstory of this couple. There's nothing righteous in their lives. And so he speaks to them about righteousness, the righteousness that God demands. What did Jesus say about righteousness? Matthew chapter 5, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So, so God's standard of righteousness is, is not pretty good. It's perfection. And so here Paul is speaking to uh, this couple and he's talking to them about righteousness and he's making it clear to them that God's standard is, is, is righteousness and you are not that. You do not measure up. 
to that. So he speaks to them about righteousness and makes that very clear. And then he moves on and he talks about self-control. Well, did self-control have any application in their lives? Here they, they were, they were, uh, they, they were a, a couple that was driven by their lusts, driven by their desires. The decisions that they made that affected kingdoms were driven by the things they valued the most, the things they wanted the most, and therefore the things that they reached for the hardest. So that she would be driven for power, enough to marry this man, enough to leave her husband and marry another man that she as a Jewish woman knew was wrong. But she was driven by that because she had to have the power that he had. And he was driven by his lust for her. She was just so beautiful. And she's a teenager. That he would do whatever it takes, including hire a magician to break them up. Self-control was something they knew nothing about. And so he was sharing with them that in Christ, we, we don't follow our impulses. That you don't, you don't just get to go through life just doing whatever you like. Paul's going to write in Titus chapter 2, and he says this, For the grace of God has appeared, and what's the result? Bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So Paul, in sharing, talks about this standard of perfection, talks about what it looks like practically in life and saying, you, Drusilla, and you, Felix, are so far from self-controlled that it's amazing. And that's a terrible, terrible news in light of the fact that he talks next about the coming judgment. Because these aren't just, you know, bad things that mean bad things for your life now, as in you're reaping your rewards now or anything like that. He talks about the judgment to come. He says there will come a time when, when we will be raised and we will answer to God for what we've done. Can you imagine what Felix must have been thinking? I wonder how much he paid. I wonder how much money he paid for that magician. I wonder what he did in the life of that Syrian king when he stole his wife. I wonder... All the damage that I wonder, all of those things that they knew about, the things that they had done, and then to hear, oh, by the way, you're going to stand before God and give an answer. You will receive judgment for what you've done. When I share the gospel with people, I talk about these things. I talk about God's standard, what God is like. And then the coming judgment. And then I ask them, when we've gotten to that point, and I talk about God's standard of perfection and what have you done? What has your life looked like? And you're going to answer for God, to God for that? When I get to that point, you, you can see a couple of things happening in people's eyes. Sometimes they are with you. And they can't wait to hear what is next. Because this bad news rocks them to the core and they must have a solution. Sometimes they don't really care. They don't really care. They just ignore that sensation in their heart. They just ignore what they know to be right, that they will stand before God and answer and they really just want to end the conversation and move on. But Felix's response is very interesting. What does he do? 
he gets very alarmed. But he doesn't say, okay, this is scary. Tell me what's next. He says, this is scary. Be quiet. Leave me alone. <laughs> let's not let's not address this too closely. Let's keep things on a surface level. Let's uh, talk about the bribe that, that you're going to give me to get out of this. But let's don't talk about eternal matters. And so that's the situation that Felix and, and Drusilla find themselves in. And uh, and Paul, of course, shares with them. He continues to meet with them over the course of two years. They continue to meet. And Paul shares. And he probably brings it right back around to that judgment. He probably talks about that standard of righteousness. He probably talks about the absence of that righteousness in the life of, of Felix and Drusilla. But he's there for two years. And we read in verse 27, when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So even when Felix moves on, by the way, he was deposed. He should have been killed, but he had a friend in Rome, and so he wasn't killed. Uh, but he was deposed. He was taken out of office. And when the next guy comes in, Felix just leaves Paul's case for the next guy to decide. And so uh, Felix just drops the ball and leaves him there. There are a couple things I want us to think about. This has kind of been an historical kind of story. We've been talking about this trial of Paul and things like that. And there are basically two things that, that I want us to think about. First of all, God had Paul exactly where he wanted him. Exactly where he wanted him. To be able to speak with kings. And not just a one-time shot like, wow, I have a three-minute audience with the king. I better say the gospel really quickly and clearly, and then I can be out of here. He got to chat with, with uh, Felix for two years. He would come often and visit. So Paul was exactly where God wanted him to be. Maybe Paul felt like he was on the shelf. It doesn't say that. But he had great opportunity, and he had unique opportunity. And I think about my own situation and reflect back on our time in Istanbul. And God worked mightily in our lives, in our family during that time. The kids loved it. We were in a tiny little apartment and my wife and I were, you know, about to pull our hair out. And the kids were putting on plays for us. They would go and they would come up with a play and then they would do it for us. They had a blast. They loved it. They had no idea that, you know, this is a miserable situation. Kids, we're supposed to be frowning and sad, you know. <laughs> they were happy. And they enjoyed it. And we got to connect with our kids in ways we hadn't on the field. But more than that, as my wife and I had, you know, we were watching plays and, you know, sitting around watching our clothes dry. And so we, we would read the Bible for hours trying to figure out what God wanted us to do. And so we would, we would go our separate directions in, 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 in our hideaways. And we would read the Bible for hours and we'd come together and we'd talk about it for hours. Right? I, you know, I, I don't, normally have those, you know, four hour conversations about deep topics like that. We did it every day. And the result at the end of that was God working in our hearts, softening our hearts so that we were open for whatever God wanted us to do rather than being dead set on, uh, we're, we're going to make Russia work because this is what God has called us to do. And this is just an obstacle we're going to get by. And this is something we're going to look back in the future. And we're going to say, you see, we, we were faithful and we persisted and, and God began to soften our hearts. We got to the point where we said, Lord, wherever you want us, wherever, on the mission field, not on the mission field, wherever you'd, you'd want us to be. And that was when we got communication from Woody, from Parkside, saying, yeah, you know, we, we, we don't really want to be responsible for bringing missionaries off the field, but how would you guys think about coming to Parkside? 
coming to pastor at Parkside. And, and I, I say this often, and it's true. Had we received that email a week earlier, the answer would have been no. We're going to stick this out. This is just a trial, and we're going to stick this out. Thanks for asking. That would have been the answer had the email come a week earlier. But the Lord had us on the shelf for reasons that we could not understand at the time. And he used that to bring us here. We praise God for that. And so I wonder about your own situation. You have desires, you have plans, you have good things that you want to do. And you can't. You can't get them done because this thing won't come into place or because you got this other issue and, and whatever and you kind of feel like you're on the shelf and it's, maybe it's been a couple of years. Maybe it's been longer than that and you're thinking, what is God doing? Can't we just get on with this? I mean, Paul, the missionary, should be out being a missionary, not locked up in chains. And God had a different plan. And of course, that's normal if you think back through the history of the church. Think about Joseph. Think about all the way back in, the, in Genesis. Joseph, of course, the, a good guy, is sold into slavery. So he's a slave, and that doesn't last all that long because pretty soon he's a prisoner instead. Why did God have him on the shelf? But he didn't know for years until that famine happened in the land. And all of a sudden, Joseph was exactly positioned so that God's people would be provided for because he had been on the shelf in the right place for all those years. Or think about the people of Israel. So after that, uh, at, at the end of Joseph's life, of course, they, they all move down. The whole family, the whole clan, the whole tribe moves down. There are about 70 of them. They go down into Egypt. And they're, they're blessed people. They're honored. They're well taken care of. They have their own land. This is great. We're friends with, with Pharaoh. And, of course, you start the book of Exodus, and everything's different. They've been on the shelf for 400 years in chains. Why? Why? Well, God was going to show himself strong. He was going to deliver his people. He was going to take them out of the hands of Pharaoh. And he was going to show that God himself is more powerful than Pharaoh and all the gods of the Egyptians. And there were millions of them. They had multiplied in an amazing way while they were in captivity. They were suffering and it was hard and they were on the shelf. And God was busy doing his thing. So that when he would come on the scene 400 and something years later, there would be a mass of people that God would call out and make into a nation. Just like he told Abraham that he would do. So they were on the shelf. And then, of course, you think about Christ himself. Jesus should be out preaching. He should be healing people. He should be doing all these things. And now he gets arrested. And his disciples are thinking, what's going on? And they're seeing him with the trial and things are going badly. And then the crucifixion comes and they're, they're out of here. It seems like he's on the shelf. And of course, we know the conclusion of that story. We, we know that it was not an accident that Jesus was up there hanging on the cross, that he was, he was not there against his will. But he was up there precisely accomplishing the purposes of God, though his disciples didn't understand it. He was exactly where God wanted him to be. There he was on the cross, not, not suffering as a martyr, but suffering as a substitute, standing in your place, 
hanging in your place on the cross, bearing the wrath of God that you deserve because of your sin. Because remember righteousness, self-control, coming judgment. He's standing in your place bearing the wrath of God. That judgment from God that you deserve and that I deserve is poured out on him. And so the naked eye looks at Jesus on the cross and sees a man who's bleeding and suffering and and hopeless. And this is a tragic, terrible, sad ending. God was accomplishing the greatest thing that had ever been accomplished. It seemed like Jesus was on the shelf, but of course he was not. That brings us to our second takeaway, and that's the gospel itself. I think about Felix and Drusilla and Paul sharing the gospel with them. And when he got to the point where he said, does this concern you? Felix's answer was, yeah, so I don't want to hear any more. Let's move on, please. Talk about something a little nicer, please. That's what Felix wanted. The challenge for us this morning is to hear what Paul said about righteousness. God's standard isn't do pretty well, please. His standard is perfection. God is all the way righteous. And he demands that we be all the way righteous. And we look, look at our lives and, and we think about self-control and we think, I'm not righteous. And in light of the coming judgment, that's a terrifying thing. It should be a terrifying thing. And it should be a terrifying thing that causes us, like the Philippian jailer, to say, what then must I do to be saved? And not be like Felix to say, I'm done talking about this because it's too hard. And so the challenge, the call for us, the instruction for us this morning is to hear that gospel call. And to see that, yes, you don't measure up. I don't measure up. To see that, that God's standard I have broken again and again. And there will, there will come a time of judgment. And the only way to escape that judgment is in Christ. Where Christ gives you his record of righteousness because he had self-control and he was perfectly righteous in his life and he bore your judgment so that you can have forgiveness of sins. This is the gospel call. And, And I don't want anyone this morning who hears this call to leave like Felix, saying, boy, I'm glad that's over. Thinking about judgment's just too much, and I'd rather not think about it. But respond like that Philippian jailer. What must I do to be saved? And think about the answer. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Trust in Him. Believe in Christ. And He gives you His righteousness. He credits that to your account. And he bears your judgment so that you have forgiveness of sins. And you can stand before God at peace with him. Perfectly at peace with God because of what he has done. And so if if you don't know Christ, the call for you is to believe in Jesus. Turn away from that old thinking of uh, God doesn't really matter or his standard is just pretty good. And I could probably meet that standard or whatever other fleshly sinful thought Turn from that and turn to Christ, realizing that God's standard is perfection. You don't meet it, but Jesus does. And you don't want to bear the judgment of God, but Jesus did. 
And if you will trust in him, you will stand before God at peace with him. And so that's the call for us. And for those of us who are in Christ, the call for us is to praise God for that. Theology matters. Theology matters. These are the things that are true for us in Christ. And it will show itself in the way we live. But this morning, I want us to praise God for what he has done for us in Christ. And if you are outside of Christ, come to Christ. Put your faith. What are you waiting for? Don't be like Felix and stiff arm the grace of God. Don't be like Felix and and want to ignore that message. But respond in faith. That's the call this morning. Let's pray. Father, I give you great glory for the gospel of salvation in Christ. I think about righteousness and self-control. When I think about those things in my life, if it were up to me to meet the standard of your righteousness, I would certainly stand in your judgment condemned. But Christ... But Christ, I give you glory for Jesus and what he has done for me. I give you glory that we get to have peace with you in Christ. And Father, I pray this morning that there would be no one walk out of here who does not know you, but that they would put their faith in Christ and they would know that peace with you. They would know this life in Christ. Father, we can't affect that in the lives of other people as much as we would want to. And so we ask that you by your spirit would work. We ask that you by your spirit would draw them to yourself. Father, be glorified in us as we give you great praise for this salvation that we have in Christ. We praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. In a moment, there's going to be a family up here to pray with you, pray with you if you want to uh, come and pray with them. That's a blessed uh, ministry opportunity. And... Um, I just have this benediction for you this morning. This is from Numbers chapter 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen and amen. God bless you and you are dismissed.